I'd like you to picture in your mind this morning a carousel. Maybe it's at Como Park Zoo or one of those places like that, an amusement park where there's that thing that twirls around in circles and you ride a wooden horse or a seat or something like that. There's the music and the and the sound, and you're looking around as you go from around in that circle on that carousel. If you can picture that in your mind. Using that as an illustration, I think that as citizens of suburban America, we all ride a wooden horse on the consumer carousel. And on this ride, there is a certain place where we get our chance to put our left hand, as it were, on that pole, and to reach out, if you remember the old days at least, where you reached out and tried to get that brass ring. And this carousel just keeps making its way around, and we listen to the festive music, and we see our reflection on the ceiling, on the mirrored ceiling, and on the side panels. And then we come around and we realize we're at the same place again. And once again, we grab onto the pole and we lean over to try to get the brass ring. But on this carousel, every ring as we go around is a little bigger, and it's a little better. You understand this process. We start off on life as we're spinning around with a small apartment. And then we come again right back to this very same place, and this time it's a starter house. Slowly, time spins around and we come back, and we reach again, and this time it's for a bigger home or maybe in a better location. The carousel, the consumer carousel spins around and we replace what we've had with something bigger and something better. We start off and first of all it's McDonald's and we're pretty excited to eat there. But then as time passes it's something like Famous Dave's or Olive Garden or Red Lobster. And then time passes and at the end, we hope it's a place with a very unique name and guys who wear white hats as they cook. Same thing, but bigger and better. It happens with transportation too, doesn't it? That first car, you just hope the thing holds together. Then as time passes, we move for something more reliable. And then we come around again, and it's that dream vehicle that we've always wanted. Each trip around the consumer carousel produces a bigger and a better replacement of what we already had. Bigger and better housing, big, bigger and better food, transportation, tools, appliances, furniture, vacations, clothes. Always bigger, always better. Our positions in life may vary widely, and they do, in fact, in this congregation today, but no matter our age, no matter our economic level, we all have a horse on this ride. There is something that you have in your life right now that you want bigger and better. And you're hoping that it's coming in the very near future. The problem is that hearing this festive music and seeing all those bright lights and seeing our own reflection on the mirrored ceiling and the side panels we can become mesmerized with the dizzying quest for bigger and better things and lose sight of the world beyond the carousel. There's a world out there. It is, in fact, the real world, but we can lose sight of it. 
And one day Jesus was teaching, and, he, and a man spoke to him who had become so consumed with the whole process of the consumer carousel that he had lost sight of the world beyond. I'm quite sure that the man had no realization that this was the case as he came to Jesus. But as Jesus so often did, he brought the man to face reality, to look beyond the amusement ride and to look beyond to the real world, to see reality. And I think that the Savior's words are just as fitting and challenging to each of us today. We find this account in Luke chapter 12. I invite you there in your Bibles to Luke chapter 12 or to look on with someone near you or just to listen. So we look at this passage as Jesus speaks with this man, Luke chapter 12, and beginning at, thir- at verse 13. We find here, first of all, a brief exchange between Jesus and this man. Verse 13 of Luke chapter 12. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. Now we need not bristle at the man's apparent audacity. Rabbis were commonly asked to arbitrate disputes between people. So this man is doing what comes very commonly in that day. We do not know the details of this situation between himself and his brother, what this dispute was all about, but he feels that he has been defrauded of his inheritance. A relative has died, and the survivors are arguing about who gets what. This man believes that he has been denied the opportunity to grasp a bigger and a better brass ring. And he's mad about it. I'm so angry with my brother. I can't believe that he's taken this inheritance and he will not share it with me. It's not right. Who does he think he is? This is injustice. He has my claim and he won't release it. Surely Jesus will see the injustice of this. Surely Jesus will do something about it. How disappointed this man must have been when Jesus replied, verse 14, Man, who appointed me a judge or an arbitrator between you? I have not been assigned by my father. I have not been assigned by anyone else to arbitrate this discussion between the two of you. Now, I think there's a profound thought there in how Jesus deals with this question and this issue. Think about this. This man, this man may well have been defrauded. And let's assume that as he comes with such boldness before Jesus, that in fact he probably was. It wasn't fair. What his brother was doing was probably not right. But if nothing else, at least that possibility is there before Jesus. And what does Jesus do about it? Absolutely nothing. He doesn't solve it. He doesn't deal with the apparent injustice. He doesn't even look into the matter anymore. He says, essentially, I want nothing to do with your dispute. Now that's something to think about. Do you know Jesus to back away from issues that matter? He just backs away. It doesn't matter 
who gets the inheritance. And I want nothing to do with the situation. Jesus' view is certainly not shared by everyone, is it? I don't think you have to live very long to meet siblings who fight over their parents' things. And the parents don't even need to be dead. If you are trapped on the consumer carousel, you do not think that inheritances are unimportant. You think they're all important. And you want to make sure that you get your share so that you can grab your bigger and better brass ring. And you don't think like Jesus. I think there's a challenge that we could draw here, certainly an application, to determine in our own minds, and I would challenge you to this end, to determine now that if you ever are one who may inherit something, that you make up your mind now that it's not your money, it's not yours, so you will lay no claim to it. If the other inheritors want to give you something and that in fact makes them feel better to share it a certain way and give it to you in a certain way, fine. Do so out of love for them and that the relationship would be right. But let them make that determination because it's not your money. If they do not want to share it with you, or they want to salve their conscience in a way that is purely unjust as you look at fairness between the two, you're released from any worry because it's not your money. Inheritances don't matter. Leave it in the hand of God to provide what he wants you to manage. But don't fight for it. Trust him to give you what he wants. What we can do as we set our minds there and make that determination before there ever is any inheritance is that we refuse to covet and we refuse to act with greed and we treat people rightly. Release yourself from the greed and the covetousness that attaches itself to inheritance. It didn't matter to Jesus. There is something, though, that does matter to Christ. And he goes after that right away. He leaves the inheritance alone. I want nothing to do in dealing with this issue. But, verse 15, he said to them, watch out to them, apparently turning to others who are around this man, certainly sending the message to him, but watch out or be on your guard against all kinds of greed. That's the issue that he sees in this man's request to deal with this inheritance problem. Watch out for all forms of greed. The man's frustration was not, with not getting his fair share of the inheritance had less to do with justice and more to do with covetousness. So Jesus says, watch out for that. What happened was that his brother's greed had jarred his own greed loose. And Jesus says, hear my words, you must guard your heart against greed. The word is often in the Greek translated covetousness. We can look at it 
uh, either way, and I think it includes both ideas. This is the attitude that says, why do I not have what everyone else seems to have? Sometimes that really comes to head in the situation of inheritance. Why don't I get an even share? But that can apply to many other situations. Why don't I have what everyone else seems to have? That's greed. Guard against that thought in your heart. I wish I could afford that. If I only made a little more, how much easier life would be? I've got to have a bigger and better you fill in the blank. Guard your heart against that. It's fire, says Jesus. Don't play with it. Guard your heart against covetousness. Hebrews 13.5 says it so well. Keep your lives free from the love of money and be content with what you have. We are all content with what we hope to have. The Bible says be content now with what you have. In the next phrase, Jesus explains the reason behind this warning. Verse 15, watch out, be on your guard against all kinds of greed. A man's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In other words, material wealth cannot give real life. This life on the carousel is real, but there's life beyond the carousel. And life isn't provided in the carousel or on the carousel. It comes from God. There's a different source of life than the things and the possessions of this life. So Jesus says, let's get this straight. The possessions that you own have nothing to do with real life. Think about it. And we know he's right. Possessions do not make us happier. Certainly not with any permanence. They cannot make you holier. They have nothing to do with the quality of your relationships with other people. Riches can do nothing to put peace in your heart, and they cannot make you eternally satisfied. Life does not consist in the abundance of the things that you have. That's not life. To drive home that point, Jesus illustrates with a parable. A clarifying parable, beginning at verse 16. And he told them this parable, the ground of a certain rich man produced a good crop. He thought to himself, what shall I do? You see him stroking his chin there. What should I do with all this wealth? I have no place to store my crops. This is what you call a good problem, right? Wealth in that day is grain. It might be sheep, it might be grain, it's something tangible, something you can eat, something you can use to stay alive. In an agrarian culture, that is wealth. This is a good problem. What shall I do with my wealth? I don't have anywhere to store it. Verse 18, then he said, this is what I'll do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones, and there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. A 
Let's stop for a moment and analyze this man. How did he get rich? He got rich in farming. He's not a thief. He's not a swindler. He did not strike it rich at Mystic Lake Casino. It's not how he got wealthy. Have you seen that billboard? What's your Mystic Lake story? I must confess, I, have a, I am very, very tempted. I want to get a spray can and go up there on a ladder one day and say, my Mystic Lake story. I gambled everything away. I am now addicted to gambling. I have lost my wife. My children hate me, and I want to kill myself. That's my Mystic Lake story. I'm really tempted to do that. I know that'd be defacing property, and I'd end up in prison, and that'd be a problem, but... What is your Mystic Lake story? That's a culture in which we live. How do you strike it rich? This man's not even there, and I don't want to put him there. That he won the lottery. That he gained an inheritance. It's not even that. This man farmed. That's hard work. It's what you call good, old, hard, honest work. Farming. You till up the soil, you plant the seed, and it grows, and there's a bumper crop, and the man is suddenly wealthy. Or, in fact, it seems already wealthy, but now it's wealth on top of wealth. He's a wealthy man who has a bumper crop. Now, who makes it grow? Who makes the crops grow? Who makes sure that the right hydration is there, that there's no blight, that there's no infestation of some sort? God has blessed this man. In his common grace, blessed him with good things. He's worked hard. God has blessed that effort. And the man has more than he knows what to do with. As verse 17 then says, he begins to contemplate what I'm going to do here. Is there anything wrong with that? Again, that's a good problem. A wise businessman, he assesses his situation, he makes legitimate plans of expansion, and as verse 18 indicates, he just finds a solution. I don't think he's done anything wrong here necessarily. There are many who will critique him at this point and say he shouldn't be tearing down his barn. It's, it's just a parable, just a story. Obviously, the man had enough land to put other barns on and not tear down those. We don't get into all of the details of it, but it's simply a decision, a business decision, that I'm going to store my wealth. Have you not played this game? When you hear somebody winning $10 million, doesn't the game go through your mind as it does through mine? How, what would I do with it? I always, then I always go through the calculation. Okay, after taxes, it'd be $5 million, not $10 million. Now, what do I do with $5 million? Where do I put it? What do I do with it right away? Somebody writes the check, I got $5 million in my hands. What do I do with it right away? And then where would I put it? Where would I invest it? How would I use it? That's all this man's doing. Legitimate, honest, hard work. Now, if we came up with $5 million, it wouldn't be that, but <laughs> that legitimate hard work. And he begins to figure out how to divide it up, how to take care of it how to invest it. Storing grain in a granary in an agrarian culture is a way of securing permanent wealth. So far, so good. The problem comes at verse 19. 
I'll say to myself, you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy. Eat, drink, and be merry. Did you notice in verses 17 through 19 all of the references to I and my? You might even want to just underline those references. What will I do? I have no place to store my crops. This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build bigger. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I'll say to myself. He was boxed in on all four sides by self. All he could see on the carousel was his own reflection in the mirrors. And in his self-centered worldview, he sees excess wealth as a ticket to early retirement. Now here's the logic of that. And I think it's a logic that we often follow in our own minds, in our culture. We, have money to f- we make money to feed and clothe and house and entertain ourselves. So if you have all the money that you're going to ever need to feed and clothe and house and entertain yourself, it's time to quit making money. It's time to start living it up. That's the basic logic that this man has. Makes sense as far as it goes. Perfectly logical. Or maybe not. Verse 20. But God said to him, You fool. This very night, your life will be demanded of you. You fool. That means not that this man was simply intellectually stupid. It means, it speaks of moral failure to perceive life as God sees it. What he is presuming as he makes his statement, I'm going to put it all away and live on it and live life up, what he's presuming is what? He is presuming that he is captain of his own fate. Just a simple error in his calculation. He's not. He has big plans of securing his ease and living it up for a long time. He fails to recognize that God runs the universe and does not ask our permission to call us off the carousel. I'm captain of my own fate. He also presumes that we make money to feed and clothe and house and entertain ourselves, period. That's the end of the issue. But did you notice what Jesus says there next? Do you notice that? Verse 20. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? There's a lot in that statement. Jesus is saying, you know, that's really not the case, that we live to just feed and clothe and entertain ourselves and eat. It's not really the case. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? You see, your wealth is not really your wealth. It's God's wealth. And it's going to stay here after you go. It will not go with you. Psalm 49, verse 16. Do not be overawed when a man grows rich, when the splendor of his house increases, for he will take nothing with him when he dies. 
Solomon said in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me and who knows whether he will be a wise man or a fool. Yet he will have control over all the work into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. For all I can see that wise men die, For all can see that wise men die, the foolish and the senseless alike perish, and leave their wealth to others. Psalm 49. You've heard often that account of John D. Rockefeller, an extremely wealthy man. He died and someone asked his accountant, how much did John D. leave behind? And the accountant wisely replied, he left it all behind. God says to this man, to whom are you leaving your wealth? You are looking at your wealth as being something that you would consume for the rest of your days. You're going home tonight. Who's going to get your wealth? You don't even know. But I'll tell you this, it's all staying here and it's going to end up in somebody else's hands. And you know what? It may end up in your children's hands. It may end up in a church's hands or in a great institution's hands. And you know what? You still don't know what's going to happen with it. You don't know how it will be used. What Jesus is saying, I think, by this idea, who's going to get your money now? He is saying, you're not looking at wealth rightly. It's not about consuming here. There's a whole bigger issue to it. We need to wait on that point, at least as far as today is concerned, for Lord willing, next week as we look further into Jesus' teaching about wealth and the next life. Where he will instruct his disciples as the passage continues that wealth can be invested in eternity. But whatever you leave here will be left here in the hands of others and you have no idea what will happen with it. We receive wealth from God as stewards. Money is intended to sustain us. Yes, it is. But it is also given that we might invest it in eternity and in people. This is the folly of this man. You know, we live in a culture that is pressuring us to this same folly. And one of the concepts that we put with it is the word retirement. And you know, some of you, as young as you are, you've already retired in your heart. The spirit is something like this. I have worked my whole life. I'm tired. I will stop and I will live at ease. I've earned it. Now let's understand, obviously, there's nothing inherently wrong with quitting your day job. There's nothing wrong with slowing down. In fact, the body pretty well dictates that for you. Of course, we will not continue. All of us have the ability to continue in employment until the day that we drop over. The problem is less in what you retire from and more in the area of what you retire to. The moral failure of this man is that he had retired to a life of self-centered ease. And I want to say this lovingly to challenge us, but I really mean this with all of my heart. If you're living to put away enough wealth to chase a white ball around green grass, 
If you're living the rest of your life so that you can sit and watch television and read books and shift your leathery body at different positions in the sand as the sun bakes you, if the only thing you're going to call real work is sightseeing and visiting the grandkids, you need a life. You need a life now. Because that kind of thinking ends in misery. I think that's Jesus' point in part, or at least an application of it. But let's go to the heart of what he's really saying in verse 21. This is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself, but is not rich toward God. Did you see what happened to that man? Did you hear my story, says Jesus? All this storing up in wealth... And on that day, God says, you're done. He had life by the tail. He had just hooked the biggest and the very best brass ring. Material wealth with no guilt and no one to spend it on but myself and live at ease. And in a moment of time, it all vanished. Jesus says, listen, you do not want to be that man. If your living is focused on the abundance of possessions and you think that life is all about the things that you have amassed, you are a moral fool. It is utter folly to amass earthly wealth at the expense of relational wealth with God. How, this is how it will be with anyone who stores up things for himself and is not rich toward God. I think that means is not rich in our relationship with Him. Why does that make sense? Let's land on that thought as we close here. Why does that make sense? Bear with me a little further and let's think through this. Let's think about what Jesus has said. And let's try to really bring it home in our own hearts and minds. Why does that make sense? Why is Jesus speaking lovingly and not simply harshly? I think it makes sense for a number of reasons. I offer just a few. First of all, because every material possession is a fleeting pleasure while our relationship with God is eternal. I think it makes sense because every material possession has no value or worth apart from God. He supplies it. How can we love it and not Him? And that leads to the next point, because loving the things God has made while ignoring Him is idolatry. It makes perfect sense. He's being fair. He's being loving in what he says. Let's ask a second question. What does it look like? What does it mean to be rich toward God? I think it means, above all things, to be reconciled to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you have no sense today that you're a sinner, you're in trouble. 
but I hope I don't speak to anyone that's there. If you do have a sense, though, that you are a sinner and no sense that God has forgiven you, you need to become wealthy toward God. And that means to come to a place where you understand that the Lord Jesus Christ has taken your sin. He has paid the penalty of that sin and He offers you eternal life through faith in what He did for you. If you embrace His death and His resurrection for you, you can be forgiven of your sin and you can enter into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ and be right with God and forgiven for eternity. If you don't have that, you don't have anything. And it would be worth you selling every earthly possession you have to get it. But you know the good news is you don't have to sell anything or do anything as such. You simply need to turn from your sin and to embrace the Savior. Without that, you have no wealth. What does it mean to be rich toward God? It means that we are reconciled to God through Jesus Christ. That's the ultimate wealth. It means to actively and consistently then feed your soul with God's Word in a purposeful effort to know who He is and to love Him for it. That means that in your own life you will be reading God's truth. It means that in some smaller group somewhere you will be relating to other people who know the Lord and will be learning His Word. It means that you will be gathering with a body of people on the Lord's day and searching the Scriptures together and seeking to know God through His Word. That's wealth toward God. What does it mean to be rich toward God? It means to commune with Him regularly and warmly and humbly in prayer. To talk to the Lord of the universe is real wealth. Yes, it does mean to deposit wealth in heaven by investing time and money here in the cause of Christ. To make the exchange of wealth here for wealth there. Not simply to give what we never miss, but to give and, in, and place there what could be used here for our enjoyment. That's wealth toward God. Riches toward God means to invest your life in the spiritual progress of others. It means to be a disciple maker. And you might object here. Well, I don't teach a Sunday school class. In fact, I've not been asked to teach a Sunday school class, and it might even be a disaster if I were asked to teach a Sunday school class. Think outside of that very narrow box. That's stunted thinking. If you know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior, you have that wealth of being reconciled to Him, you should be investing your life in someone else and drawing them closer to the Lord Jesus Christ. Unless the need at this point in your life is to even come to know God and to start in the first steps of knowing who He is. And in that case, I think it would be right for you to still be seeking His Word and seeking to grow. But outside of that, 
every one of us should be influencing someone else for the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's many, many ways of doing that. It's not just teaching a Sunday school class. Thank God for those who do that in a formal way. But you need to be talking with someone and leading another soul closer to Jesus Christ in some way, shape, or form. You might be the kind of person who just can bring people to the right place. Maybe you're the person who's very good in one-on-one -on -one conversation. Maybe you're capable of taking the Bible and encouraging someone else with it. Maybe you're capable of just meeting with someone and holding one another accountable and praying. But in some way or another, our lives should be invested in the life of someone else, drawing them closer to Jesus Christ. And as we do that, we are pursuing wealth toward God. The beauty of it all is that Jesus wants you to be fabulously rich. But Jesus knows that wealth is not the temporal and fleeting pleasure that you can hook on the consumer carousel. Jesus teaches us that true wealth is found in intimacy with God. So if you are seeking intimacy with God and drawing other people into that intimacy, you're a magnet toward God then you're pursuing real wealth. And Jesus wants you to be fabulously rich. He commends to you the kind of wealth that will make you infinitely happy and will infinitely satisfy. It matters not if you are rich or poor in this life. The question that is before us as Jesus speaks here today through His Word is this question. Are you rich in your relationship with God? Are you investing in eternal things? In his book, The Treasure Principle, Randy Alcorn tells the story of two young men who died premature deaths in the land of Egypt. Picture it in your mind, down a very dusty road, garbage-littered back alleyway in the city of Cairo is an unpretentious, unkempt cemetery. One tombstone in that graveyard, if you walk through the tall grass, bears the name William Borden and the dates 1887 to 1913. Looking at this obscure grave, it is shocking to realize that Borden was a Yale University graduate and the inheritor of a vast sum of wealth. But William Borden sat down one day and said, what am I going to do with my wealth? How am I going to divide it up? Where am I going to invest it? And he invested it all in missions. And he took journey to, to Egypt. And there he proclaimed the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to Muslims in that land. Twenty-five years of age, he contracted spinal meningitis and died in Cairo. 
in a Muslim land buried in the American missionary graveyard. In this life, that's about as low as you can go. It's not a long journey from there to the Egyptian National Museum where artifacts from King Tutankhamun's crypt are displayed. King Tut died at age 17, and he was buried in a golden tomb, inside a golden tomb, inside a golden tomb, in a golden coffin with golden chariots and tons of golden artifacts laid all around him for the afterlife. You know, no one touched that tomb for 3,000 years. It was discovered about nine years after Borden's death, and everything was still there. Nothing had been touched. Two tombs. Alcorn asks the all-important questions. He recounts this tourist experience on his part. He says this, Which of these two men was rich toward God? I speak largely to believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and you know the answer to that question. Who was rich toward God? Who was rich on earth? Who was rich toward God? You know, someday, in the very near future, God is going to call you off the carousel. Your days are numbered, as are mine. And he's going to say, it's time to come home. And on that day, we will leave every earthly possession behind. The only wealth that we're going to take with us is the wealth of our relationship with Him. Will you enter eternity as a wealthy man or woman? When we lift up our eyes and look beyond the carousel and see the real world as Jesus sees it, what utter folly to pursue material wealth at the expense of our relational wealth with God. Are you rich toward God? Let's bow for prayer. Is my prayer, Father, that this sermon would hit this congregation the way that it's hit me, right between the eyes. We need to be shaken awake to see ourselves and to see our world and to see what really counts.
I pray, Lord, that with the rebuke and with the conviction that we would understand your loving arm around us to steer us into what is truly wealthy. We're like little children that are playing around in a mud puddle with our swimming suits on and thinking that we're having the best time of our life and you come as our Father And you put an arm around us and you say, I'd like to take you to a big lake. And show you what is really fun. Lord, may we respond in simple trust. Because the mud puddle of this world and the carousel that we're swirling on in this world seems so very attractive and have such a pull upon our hearts. God, free us, I pray, through the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God, free us from being consumed with what is fleeting and passing. Help us to remember that we are but a vapor, and I pray, dear God, with all of my heart that you would show us your love for us to point us to the true riches that are found in relationship with you and you alone. Do a work in our hearts, Father, I pray. Teach us your will and your wisdom. And I do pray in behalf of anyone who is here that has not tasted and seen that the Lord is good has not come to experience that you are life's greatest treasure and joy, that there is an eternal destination for our souls. I pray that you would draw that one to yourself as Savior today. May they realize it's not something you buy. It's something you receive as a gift. Lord, I pray that you'll open blind eyes and permit anyone who is separated from Christ at this moment to embrace him and to receive him as Savior. Do a work in our hearts and sanctify us through the truth that we have considered this day together. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. <laughs>